Hey everyone, thank you for joining us tonight. I am so blessed to be able to bring the word of the Lord to you. And I want to share tonight on the topic of the church being the ecclesia of God and the words of Jesus in Matthew chapter 16 when he talked about how the church would prevail against the gates of hell. He said that technically the gates of hell will not prevail against the church. But there's a calling, I believe, in this day for the church to realize who we are, our identity, as well as our purpose here on the earth. So I want to read from Matthew. Matthew chapter 16, verses 13 through 20. I'm going to be reading from the New American Standard Bible, and you'll understand later on my reason for choosing this particular version of the Scripture. Okay, it starts off by saying in verse 13, Now when Jesus came into the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, Who do people say that the Son of Man is? And they said, Some say John the Baptist and others Elijah. And still others, Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. He said to them, but who do you yourselves say that I am? Simon Peter answered, and he said, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus said to him, blessed are you, Simon Bar-Jonah, or Simon, son of Jonah, because flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my father who is in heaven." And I also say to you that you are Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not overpower it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth, listen to this, shall have been bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall have been loosed in heaven. Then he gave his disciples strict orders that they were to tell no one that he was the Christ. As I said, I want to share on the topic of the church being the ecclesia of God and our specific calling to function according to the very intent that Jesus had. Because as we see from this uh, narrative, Jesus is the one who said, I will build my church. And Jesus knows how to build his church. The scripture says that Jesus called apostles and prophets to co-labor in helping build the church. We read in, in 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 12, verse 28, that God sent in the church, first of all, apostles, secondarily prophets, and so on. In Ephesians 2.20, it says that the church is built on the foundation of apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ, the chief cornerstone. But then if you go over to 1 Corinthians chapter 3, Paul is talking about how he had received grace from God to be a wise master builder as an apostle. And the word that he uses there actually is the term in Greek from which we get our English word architect. Paul was an architect. So Paul was to cooperate and co-labor with Jesus but then the scripture is clear in 1 Corinthians 3 that Jesus said that it is upon his, upon him that the church would be built, the foundation of Christ himself. So there's no contradiction here when we read this. And when Jesus said he would build his church, he wasn't saying that we don't have a role in that, that we just sit back passively. But he's saying ultimately, even as the psalmist said, unless the Lord builds the house, those who labor, labor in vain. And so throughout the scriptures, we see how God gives to Moses back in Exodus 25 
a blueprint to build the temple of God, the tabernacle in that day. And so what happens, of course, is Moses receives instruction from the Lord to go to the top of Mount Sinai. He's up there for 40 days and 40 nights. He receives revelation from the Lord, and he writes down what we call the Ten Commandments on these tablets of stone. But a lot of times when we think about Moses on top of the mount, we think about that event solely, you know, receiving the Decalogue, the Ten Commandments. But if you read the book of Exodus, you see very clearly that there was so much more that that Moses obtained from the Lord during that time. In fact, he received the blueprints for the sanctuary. Exodus 25 verse 8 says, God speaks to Moses and says, let them, meaning the children of Israel, build me a sanctuary that I may dwell among them. Then in verse 9, he says, let them build it just so. Let them build it according to the blueprints or the pattern that I gave you up on that mountain. So today, it's really important. It's imperative because when you go over to Hebrews chapter 5, you see very clearly that in Hebrews, he speaks about the heavenly template, the heavenly pattern, and how what is built was built on the earth during that time, during Moses' day, was really a, a replicate of what the Lord has been doing in heaven, what was in heaven. And so we talk about kingdom and his kingdom come and his will be done on earth as it is in heaven. So there's a way, there's a pattern, there's a blueprint, there's a template that we are supposed to follow in order to build the church. And Jesus said, if you do it my way, you will succeed. If you do things according to the instructions that I give you, and this, of course, translates into the New Testament as well, that Paul said, I am a wise master builder, I'm an architect as an apostle, I know how to build the church because he received revelation from the Lord regarding how to build the church. And Paul certainly was a learner. He was a student. The more he continued to evolve in ministry and and be active in ministry, the more he learned, the more knowledge he acquired. And I believe by the latter part of his ministry, he was definitely more knowledgeable, more experienced. But ultimately, it was based on the revelation that he received from the Lord Jesus Christ. And you read in Galatians in particular how the Lord spoke to Paul and the Lord prepared him and called him and and, and made him ready to to minister as an apostle in his day. So it's very important that we understand that when we talk about building the church, that we have to go back to the actual New Testament uh, pattern, the New Testament foundation and principles in order to build the church. And so as we've looked at Matthew chapter 16 today, verses 13 through 20, we see Jesus He's journeying with his disciples to a place called Caesarea Philippi. Today, it's Banias. Caesarea Philippi was an ancient Roman city that was located at the southwestern base of Mount Hermon, which was the largest mountain in Israel. It was about 40 kilometers north, or 25 miles, north of the Sea of Galilee. And it was known for its caverns, red rock bluffs, forests, and springs. Now, Caesarea Philippi was also the place of the headwaters of the River Jordan. But interestingly, devout Jews would never go there. It's because, essentially, the pagans had taken over this area. Caesarea Philippi was once called by the Greeks Panias, as it was the site where the goat god Pan was worshipped by them. So what was Jesus up to? 
What was Jesus' intention for bringing his disciples to this place called Caesarea Philippi? Well, as we continue to read this narrative, we see that the Lord confronted them with the truth of his identity and his purpose for coming into the world, which would be extended to them and through them, that they would be the ones who would also fulfill the very purpose, the very mission of Jesus Christ. So Jesus... Asks his disciples a question while he's there. He brings them to this place and he asks them a question. He says, who do men say that I am? And he said, well, some say you're Elijah. Some say John the Baptist. Some say Jeremiah or one of the other prophets. Then he looks at them and he says, but who do you guys say I am? Who do y'all say that I am? And he answers, Peter answers, and he says, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. It's a powerful thing that is happening here. He's saying to them, do you really understand? Do you really know based on personal revelation, not on what other people are saying, not on what you think, but do you know deep down within, do you have this revelation of who I am? Of course, Jesus would go to the cross and it was critical that they understood who he was, that they were secure in their knowledge of his identity. So Jesus is called the Christ. He's referred to as the son of the living God. It's interesting that during Jesus' day, there were shrines that were dedicated to the veneration or the worship of Caesar at this very place called Caesarea Philippi. Caesarea Philippi was actually, there were these shrines, this this area of worship was built to commemorate Caesar Augustus. When Caesar Augustus died, the Roman Senate actually um, venerated him as a deity, as a god. But during his lifetime, he was known as the Son of God. Isn't that interesting? He was also known as the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. So here is Jesus at this very place where there are shrines that have been erected to the worship of Caesar Augustus. And so he says, look, who do people say that I am? And they said, well, you are this. And then, but who do you say that I am? Peter, the spokesman for the group says, we believe that you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And so at this very place, at this Acropolis, at this this kind of high area in Caesarea Philippi where people were worshiping uh, Caesar Augustus as as king of kings and lord of lords Jesus is pronounced by his disciples as the true king of kings and the lord of lords it's a powerful revelation a powerful encounter that they are experiencing in this place now at the bottom of the caverns, of, at the bottom of, of the cliff, so to speak. There is a cave in Caesarea Philippi. And this cave, actually the waters flowed out of it from the top of the mountain. This cave was known as the, uh, as the Gate of Hades. It was actually what they considered in that time, the, the Romans considered it as the entranceway into the underworld or the underground. So it was a place that they believed literally was the entranceway into Hades. And so here at this very place, Jesus speaks about the gates of Hades. And he says, you are the church. You will affect and execute my will, advancing my kingdom on the earth. First of all, because you have a revelation of who I am. 
you understand this, that I am not just a teacher. I'm not just the one who will die for the sins of the world. That is certainly the most important part of it. But they understood that Jesus wasn't just a savior in the sense that he would die and even rise again. That, But ultimately, that his purpose was to become the king of kings and the Lord of lords. Because we read Paul's writings. He says, one day, every knee will bow and every tongue confess to the glory of God the Father that Jesus Christ is Lord. Lord means king. And so the idea here is that there is a place where where the kingdoms of this world will one day become the kingdoms of God. You know, you read the book of Daniel, we understand ultimately that all of the earthly empires will be replaced and will be will be um, supplanted by the supremacy of the kingdom of God itself. So this is a powerful place for the disciples. This is a, a critical moment. It is really a time where they begin to understand the true purpose of Jesus coming. That he has come to be the savior of the world, but he's also come to be the king. That every knee will bow, that every tongue will confess, that those rulers of that day even, even as powerful as Caesar was in that time, that Caesar was not the king of kings. He was not the Lord of lords. Jesus Christ was. And of course, in that day, if you believed that Jesus was the true king, then you would that would put you in a, in a place of, of great risk and peril, perhaps even death. But Jesus speaks to them. And, and he, he begins to say to Peter, he says this in, in verse number 18, I tell you, you are Peter. It's the Greek word Petros, which speaks of a large piece of rock. And he says, and on this rock, and then he uses the Greek term Petra, which means a larger rock, a rock like Gibraltar. I will build my church, and he says, in the gates of Hades, the powers of the infernal region shall not overpower it or be strong to its detriment or hold out against it. That's what the Amplified says. So Jesus will build his church. On what? On what foundation? He says, upon you, Peter. Some would say, some traditions say, well, Peter was the first pope. Peter was the one in which the church was built. But when you really understand this, Peter certainly played a very important role in the establishment of the church. But it wasn't on the foundation of Peter, but it was on the foundation of Jesus Christ. But not only what Jesus himself did, but ultimately what would happen as people began to receive revelation. Because upon this rock, what? This rock of what? This revelation, this understanding. Peter, flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And the church, of course, is the ecclesia. And what he's saying here is that church would grow, the church would, would flourish, the church would expand throughout the earth as a result of the ongoing process of revelation that forms the foundation of God's work in the earth. It's a powerful, powerful thing. And so what matters most, even to us today, is that each generation, men, women, and children, have a fresh revelation of his glory in our lives. This is so important. Otherwise, the heart of the gospel will grow stale and the kingdom of God will not advance on the earth. If we're not continually 
enlarged in our understanding of his glory and his kingship over the earth and how the earth is to be filled with the knowledge of his glory, we will become hesitant in our purpose. We will not understand what it is. And the Bible says that without a vision, people perish. It literally means without a sense of prophetic purpose, people will cast off restraint. They'll they'll live aimlessly. They'll wander. They'll have no sense of direction, in other words. And so the idea here is that Jesus must forever and freshly be seen by us. We must have a continual ongoing revelation of the very person of Jesus Christ with fresh eyes. It's not enough just to to hear about him, to, to read, but there must be a revelation of who he is. We need to understand that. We need a fresh revelation of Christ. So the scripture speaks about the church, the ecclesia of God growing advancing and how the gates of hell will not prevail against that as they tap into that revelation as we begin to perceive things from heaven and we begin to implement God's will on the earth really the word ecclesia as we are going to see here speaks really of a people that have been called and set apart and called together to hear from heaven to receive prophetic revelation to begin to declare and to decree things into the heavenly realm but then to begin to implement God's will on the earth as well. And so that's what we're called to. We see this as the church. The true church, the ecclesia of God, is both prophetic and it's apostolic. It has to hear the voice of God. It has to receive revelation from the Lord, but it also has to act and advance the kingdom. It has to be a, a, a church that is on mission, a church that is going, a church that is reaching, a church that is building, a church that is breaking down the gates of hell, advancing the kingdom of God on the earth. So let's look at this. Verse 18 and 19. Jesus says, I say to you, you are Peter and I will build and on this rock, I will build my church. The gates of Hades shall not prevail against it. And I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. And whatever you bind on earth will have been bound in heaven. And whatever you loose on earth shall have been loosed in heaven. Now, please note the New American Standard Translation. If you look at the Amplified, it's even clearer that there is a sense in which the church is called to bind on the earth what has first and foremost already have been bound in heaven. And we're called to loose on the earth what God has already loosed in heaven. So we forbid on the earth what God has forbidden in heaven. And we permit on the earth what God has permitted in heaven. Ecclesia, the Greek word ecclesia, means so much more than our English word church. In fact, William Tyndale, who was the first person to translate the Bible into English directly from the original languages, translated the word ecclesia, assembly. He would not translate it church because in that time it was you know the church was was basically a political religious system that ruled over others and he was saying that's not the meaning the word actually speaks of an assembly of a gathering together of God's people the Septuagint which is the Greek translation of the Old Testament uses the word ecclesia when referring to God's people assembling together in covenant to hear the Lord's instruction for example Here's one of of the places in the Septuagint. Deuteronomy 4 verse 10. 
God says, gather the people to me and I will let them hear my words. Listen to this. Gather them to me and I will let them hear my words that they may learn to fear me all the days they live on the earth and that they may teach their children. So gather my ecclesia, my gathered people so they can hear my voice and they can learn to fear me. And then they can teach their children all the days of their life. So if you fast forward to the New Testament time, the word ecclesia, both in the Greeks and the Romans, means a duly convened assembly of citizens summoned to convene together, judge and vote on political, civil, and sometimes business matters as well. An example of this, this is very interesting. In Acts chapter 19... The word ecclesia is used three times, but it is never once translated church because clearly the context bears it out that we're not talking about a church here. So remember during that time, there was a craftsman of idols in Ephesus. His name was Demetrius. And because of the ministry of the apostle Paul, he was preaching the word and signs and wonders and miracles were happening and, and people were coming to the Lord, literally thousands of people. They forsook the worship of idols and came to worship the true and living God. And as a result, his, his uh, business was suffering and, and was receiving a blow because... People were no longer buying idols. So what ends up happening is he gets upset about this and because of the loss of business due to the preaching of Paul and he incites an assembly. Verse 32 of Acts 19. He incites an assembly. It's the word ecclesia. And then he wants to banish Paul and the believers from Ephesus. So Demetrius means this to be an official legal action, but unfortunately got out of control as an unruly mob chanted, great is Diana of the Ephesians for over two hours. Finally, the city clerk steps in and he calms the people. He chastises Demetrius. Listen to this, for not doing this in a lawful assembly. Verse 39, yes, it's the Greek word, an ecclesia. And then he dismisses the assembly, the ecclesia, verse 41. This is an example of how the ecclesia would work in the New Testament times. Bible scholar Adolf Deisman says this, throughout the Greek world and right down to the New Testament times, ecclesia was the designation of the regular assembly of the body of citizens in a free city state called out, called out, by a herald for the discussion and the decision of public business. So in God's kingdom, the ecclesia is the called out people of the kingdom who gather to hear from heaven, to legislate kingdom law, to decree and declare into the heavenly realms what God has said, and then to enact and to establish his will, his rule, his law, what he decides, what he says in heaven, or what he forbids in heaven on the earth itself. This is a powerful thing. This is what Jesus was saying. He said, I'm going to give you the keys of the kingdom. Whatever you bind on earth shall have already been bound in heaven. And what you loose on the earth shall have already been loosed in heaven. So we do what Jesus did. We live prophetically as Jesus did. In John five nineteen. he said, the son can do nothing of himself. 
He only does what he sees the Father doing. And so Jesus lived from that place of an open heaven. He replicated on the earth what he saw his Father doing in heaven. He said, I don't speak my own words, but I only speak the words of my Father. He spoke those things that the Father and speaking to him. So as above, so beneath, that the kingdom of God would be established on the earth, that his reign of righteousness and justice and his power and authority would begin to rule. We have been given keys. We have been given keys. These are keys of the kingdom. And the Bible says to loose and to bind, which literally means to forbid by an indisputable authority or to permit by an indisputable authority. There's so much power and authority that we've been given as his children, as his kingdom, co-regents, so to speak, that as the ecclesia of God, that we can bind on the earth what God says he is forbidden in heaven. We can loose on the earth what God says is my will and what I want to see permitted on the earth. So often the enemy comes to us and he tries to intimidate us and he tries to hinder us. You know, Paul said in First Thessalonians 2, I believe it's verse 18. He said, I wanted to come to you again and again. He said, but Satan hindered me. It's the Greek word ekopto, and it literally means to block, to throw up a, like to throw up a roadblock. And, and the idea is that you start a race. One of the ways it's used is found in Galatians 5, verse 6, where someone is running in a race and someone cuts in on them and knocks them down on the ground and they're not able to complete their race. So Satan is at work on the earth. He's trying to stop the the church from advancing these gates of Hades they're what are they they're not necessarily they're not offensive but they're defensive he's guarding his territory he does not want to give up what is his and of course the enemy still goes around like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour but ultimately our call is to recognize that we have authority we have authority, but before we can do what God has called us to do, we need to know what is his will. We need to choose our battles according to what he has said of us. We need to know what he is saying. This is not my will or this is my will. And so we don't be passive, but we move forward and we take territory and we advance the kingdom of God on the earth. We have been granted access, full access, the ability to move forward and take what rightfully belongs to the Lord to establish his will on the earth as it is in heaven. When we forbid on the earth what God has forbidden in heaven, we will see the kingdom come with power. When we, when we permit on the earth what God has permitted in heaven, we will see his presence, his rule of righteousness be established on the earth. So we're called as the ecclesia of God, the called out people who call, we're called out to assemble, to hear from heaven, to begin to enact on the earth, the very things he said as we declare and we decree it into the heavenly realms. And as we do this, we're going to see strongholds come crashing down. We're going to see things change. We'll see our prayers answered. People that are resistant to the gospel will all of a sudden, God will reach their hearts. God will break through the spiritual darkness and reveal himself because we have stepped into a place where we recognize that we're not just a people that come together as some people would try to define ecclesia. We come to 
together for a purpose. We come together not just to worship God, as important as that is, but to hear his voice. We're called to be a prophetic people. In the book of Acts, Peter prophesied that God would pour out his spirit on all flesh. Sons and daughters would prophesy, would have dreams and visions, that we would have access to hear from the Lord, that we would be a people in whom his spirit dwells so that he can speak to us, he can lead us, he can guide us, he can show us the way to go. As the scripture says in Isaiah, that you will hear a voice behind you saying, this is the way, walk in it. As Jesus was led by the Holy Spirit, he was led, everything he did, he was led by the Spirit. He responded to the Spirit. And so those of us who are his children in the new covenant, the Bible says those who are the sons of God are led by the Spirit. And we are called to be able to tear down things that are, that are uh, basically insurmountable, obstacles, fortresses, so to speak. You know, I love Jeremiah 33, verse 3, where the Lord says, Ask of me, and I will show you great and mighty things. But do you know that the word that is translated mighty in Hebrew is batsar, and it literally means inaccessible, things that are inaccessible. The same Hebrew word is used to speak of fortified cities or walls. So we're saying, I'm going to, I'm going to allow you to be able to penetrate. I'm going to allow you to be able to scale, to be able to access those things that are guarded, those fortified cities, those walls. You're going to be able to knock them down. So again, speaking of the gates of Hades. So we'll be able to scale. We'll be able to knock them down. We'll be able to go forward so that the enemy is not uh, able to block the church so that the church continues to move forward and do the will of God here on the earth. You know, as I was reading this, I thought about one of the narratives in the Old Testament. It's been very close to my heart in these times in which we live because I really believe there's such a parallel from from that day of Elijah to the current time in which we live. You know, Elijah was a prophet during the time that Ahab was ruling Israel and Jezebel was on the throne with him. And we know these were very dark and evil days. They, they had given themselves entirely to the worship of Baal. They had forsook the Lord. At Kroger, fresh groceries are our thing. So we check your delivery order for freshness at every step from farm to store and pick and pack every veggie in your free pickup order with care because we treat your food the way we'd want ours to be treated. We're fresh every day, so shop anyway. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Free pickup on orders of $35 or more. Restrictions may apply. Get more ways to save at the Buy 5 or More Save $1 each sale. Just buy five or more participating items and save a dollar each with card. Kroger, fresh for everyone. And as a result, the word of the Lord is released to the prophet. Elijah, the Lord says, I'm not going to send any rain. And so what happens is Elijah goes forth in 1 Kings chapter 17, and he says to Ahab, he said, there will be no dew, there will be no rain in the land except at my word. So Elijah heard the word of the Lord. He received prophetic revelation. Then he declared and decreed it into the heavenly realms. And then what we see happen is that the heavens are sealed closed. The rain is withheld. And this continues, the Bible tells us, for three and a half years. So it became very, very uh, dire, the 
condition. There was a severe drought and there was a terrible famine in the land because people had forsaken the Lord their God and they had been overtaken by the enemy. The Lord was doing something. And a lot of times when we read this passage in 1 Kings 17, we think about how they had given themselves to idolatry and and it's like God was punishing them. And I agree that the Lord was, was doing something. He was chastising his people. But I really believe that God was actually doing a work in the lives and the hearts of his people. And I'll, I'll share more about that. God was trying to reestablish himself as, as the supreme authority in their eyes, even though he was. They needed to understand this very, very clearly because the Lord's desire is that the earth will be filled with the knowledge or an awareness of his glory as the waters cover the sea. And the enemy's plan, according to Isaiah 60, verse 2, is that the darkness would cover the earth and deep darkness the people. The word deep darkness literally means a lowering sky, oppression, so that people aren't able to actually step into um, you know, the realm of God's glory. They feel, they feel oppressed. The oppression is a very good word to describe it. And so they're, they're contained and they're, they're uh, vexed by the enemy, spiritually speaking. So God's antidote, God's way to overcome this is by the light of his glory shining forth. And that's exactly what Elijah did. Elijah heard the word of the Lord. After three and a half years, the scripture tells us in 1 Kings chapter 18, verse 1, that the word of the Lord came to Elijah again. Elijah, go show yourself to Ahab, or I'm about to send rain on the earth. And of course, Elijah, he said, I hear the sound of an abundance of rain. I hear the voice of an abundance of rain is what it says. And Elijah, he goes and he, he speaks to Ahab and he says, gather the people, gather the whole nation, Bring the prophets of Baal together. He said, I want to address the nation. And at that time, Elijah stands before the people and he he challenges them. He says, how long will you waver? How long will you vacillate between two opinions? If the Lord is God, serve him. But if Baal is God, serve him. And the Bible says, the people answered him not a word. You know, even Ahab himself, when he first saw Elijah, he said, what do you want, O troubler of Israel? The point I'm trying to make is that as a result of these three plus years of famine and drought, these people had not repented. These people should have been crying out to the Lord, oh God, we're so sorry for what we've done. We repent. But yet they were hardened. They were, they were discouraged. They were embittered. And as a result of this, they, they, they didn't even respond to the preaching. Listen to this. They didn't even respond. They were not moved by the preaching of the great prophet Elijah. Think about that. I believe we are living in a day and a time where even now, people have become so hard in many parts of our world that they're no longer being moved by the preaching of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And that's a terrible thing because people have rejected the truth. People have hardened their heart to the message. You know, it used to be that men of God were, were esteemed and, and respected. And today the exact opposite is true in many, many places. So what does Elijah do? How does he respond? He says, okay, let's take it up a notch. Let's see what God is about to do. So he says, okay, here's what we're going to do. I want you to gather all of the prophets. He said, we're going to pray. We're going to, we're going to prepare a sacrifice. 
And he said, and then we're going to call out to the God. Uh, you call out to your gods. He said the, the, the 450 uh, prophets were to call out to their gods. And he says, I will call on the name of the Lord. And the God who answers by fire, he is God. The one who answers by fire, he's God. You know what the people said? They said it is well spoken. In other words, now they're saying, okay, let's see what happens. So what takes place is they, they call on the name of their gods. They cut themselves. And Elijah mocks them. Like, where is your God? Where is he? Is he not answering you in any way whatsoever? Even in the original, it says Elijah is taunting them. He's mocking them. He's saying, is your God on the toilet? You know, so, so then Elijah steps up and it came to pass. The scripture tells us at the time of the offering of the evening sacrifice that Elijah the prophet came near and he prayed a prayer. Here's what he said. He said, Lord God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, let it be known this day that you are God in Israel and I am your servant. And that I have done all these things, listen to this, at your word. Hear me, O Lord, hear me, that this people may know that you are the Lord God and that you have turned their hearts back to you once again. The Bible says the fire of the Lord fell and consumed the burnt sacrifice and the wood and the stones and the dust and it licked up the water that was in the trench. Now when all the people saw it, They fell on their faces and they said, the Lord, he is God. The Lord, he is God. At that time, as a result of a demonstration of the power of God, the nation called out to God once more. And the point I really want to zero in on for a moment is the fact that there had been no evidence, no no, uh, movement on behalf of Ahab, Jezebel or the people to turn back to God, but yet God still stepped in. The Lord in his mercy decided that he would intervene in spite of the fact that they had not repented. And God knew that if he would manifest his goodness, if he would demonstrate his power, that many of these people would turn back to him again. I'm reminded of of a couple of scriptures One is Romans 10, 20, where the Lord says, I was found by those who did not seek me. I became manifest to those who did not ask for me. And then in Hosea chapter 3, we read actually in verses 4 and 5, God is speaking there about how Israel will be basically left to themselves for, for quite some time. And some scholars believe this would be the intertestamental period where there was about 400 years of silence where they didn't hear the voice of God, there were no prophets, there was no revelation. But it says that they would be without priest. Some people believe it was during the captivity or both. They would not have a temple. There would not be the ability to worship that way. And so what happens is we, clear, we see clearly here that God was creating a spiritual void, a vacuum in the hearts of the people. That they would live basically a life with no sense of God's nearness, his presence, there would not even be the ability to, to move, to, to be able to worship God, to be able to assemble together, so to speak. And doesn't it sound like how it is in many places still in the world today where, where churches have been shut down and people are not able to gather? I know it's not that way everywhere. But it's a sense in which God is saying, look, I'm withdrawing, I'm pulling back, 
And he's saying, I want and I'm raising up a people that will seek me, that will call on me. But ultimately, we see in our culture, even in the midst of, of difficult and dark times, there, there is a great move of God in many places. But still, in many parts, people are not seeking after God. People have become discouraged. They've become overwhelmed and grief-stricken and, and just even, even distracted and weighed down by the concerns of this world, of this life. And yet I believe that we're living in a time when God is about to step in. Because as you continue to read Hosea chapter 3 and you get to verse 5, it says that the Lord is going to do something preemptive and proactive. He's actually going to step in and, and he's going to restore his people. And it says in one translation that they will come trembling to the Lord and his goodness in the last days. They will come trembling to the Lord and his goodness in the last days. Just as in the days of Elijah the prophet, when people had forgotten about God, when they were embittered and discouraged, and they were not even seeking after the Lord, the Lord stepped in. He demonstrated his power. He manifested his goodness in spite of the hardness of their hearts, and then people turned back to God. They cried out, the Lord, he is God. The Lord, he is God. And I believe we're living in a time and a season where God wants to do this once again. He wants to send his fire. He wants to show himself as the God that answers by fire. And you know, we read in, in the Bible where, where Elisha cried out when he received the, the double portion and the mantle of Elijah fell upon him. And he cried out and he said, where is the God of Elijah? And I believe we are living in a time when the church needs to cry out once again and say, where is the God of Elijah? Where is the God of Paul? Where is the God of Peter? Where is the God of David? That we would see this God, not as someone who is distant and aloof and unconcerned about us. It's not someone that is impotent and, and unable to do anything about our situation, but we would begin to cry out for him with such desperation, with such determination that we would say, where is this God that I read about in the scriptures? I want to know that God. I don't want to know the God of religiosity and churchianity, but I want to know a God who really moves, who really cares, who really does things, who is powerful, who is not dead, but who is alive. I want to know that God. And then also, we have to ask ourselves the question, not only where is the God of Elijah, but where are the Elijahs of God today? Where are the Elijahs of God today? Where are those who will shut themselves in with God to hear his voice? And then once they receive prophetic revelation and a word from God, they will step out in obedience fearlessly and declare God's word. I want you to look at 1 Kings 17 verse 3 for a moment with me. During this time when the word of the Lord came to the prophet and said, I'm going to send a famine on the land. It says the Lord spoke to Elijah. He said, Elijah, I want you to go and hide yourself. Hide yourself at the brook Cherith. It's a very interesting word. The word hide literally means to draw near in fact, in Psalm 31, verse 20, it says that you hide your people in the secret place of your presence. The word secret place is the noun form 
of the word hide. It's, it's the same word. So the idea basically is this, that we're called to hide. That's an action. That's a verb. But in where? Into the secret place of your presence. God is calling a people to hide themselves in the secret place of his presence today, just like Elijah did. In verse 5 of 1 Kings 17, it says, So Elijah went and dwelt, one translation says. Elijah went and he dwelt at the brook Cherith. Very interesting. The word dwelt speaks of long-term residence. It speaks really of, of habitation, not visitation. So Elijah knew that he was going to be at the brook for quite some time. It wasn't like Elijah just set up a tent and, you know, don't get too comfortable. Don't put down any, any roots. You won't be here long. Elijah knew that God was calling him to spend considerable time to put down roots and to stay, to make his abode, so to speak, at the brook Cherith. The interesting thing, the word Cherith or Cherith in the uh, original Hebrew language means the place of cutting of covenant. The place of cutting of covenant. You see, when Elijah was hidden at the brook Cherith, he was in a place where he was really renewing his covenant and God was speaking to him about the renewal of covenant of bringing him into alignment with his covenant it was a place where God was going to speak to him afresh it was a place where he was going to receive uh, just a greater download and an understanding and revelation as a result of the intimate fellowship that he would share with the Lord during these three and a half years think about it he didn't have Facebook he didn't have television He didn't have a a mobile device that he could do things with. He was there at the brook. And what did he have? He had the water from the brook. He had ravens that would come in the morning and the evening, bringing him meat and bread. And he was there with God alone. But during that time, he hid himself. The word can also mean to draw near. He drew near to God. He didn't waste his time. He didn't binge on Netflix. He was there seeking God, going deeper with God, going into such a profound place of communion and fellowship that the Lord began to speak to him and share his secrets with him. And it was a time when God began to transform Elijah, I believe, took him to a deeper place, prepared him for what laid ahead. We look at this story in the natural and we think that the reason for the Lord instructing Elijah to hide at the brook Cherith was simply that the Lord would would give him provision for his preservation. But I believe there's a deeper lesson here. Clearly, the Lord did provide for him, but there's a greater purpose. The greater purpose is that God was preparing Elijah for promotion. And I believe we are in a season when God wants to raise up an apostolic prophetic people. God wants to raise up a true ecclesia that gathers to hear his voice individually and collectively. To receive counsel from heaven prophetically. And to begin to declare and decree those things that are clearly God's will. And then to be able to enact it, to legislate it on the earth, so to speak, apostolically. As we go back to the New Testament foundations, we begin to see very clearly the way God designed the church to be. A church that is a habitation of his presence. A people that hear his voice, that he 
is in our midst. Because you see, when the children of Israel were called to come out and from their tents and, and to gather, you know, the very presence of God was there. God was speaking through Moses. God was declaring what he wanted them to know. Elijah was hearing from the Lord. He was being prepared for something powerful. God wants to raise up a people today. You know, in this time of COVID-19, of social upheaval, of partisan politics, and gross spiritual darkness, God is looking for an Elijah company. God wants to manifest to you. He wants to make himself known to you. He wants to work powerfully in your life, bringing you into greater alignment with his covenant and revealing to you his love, his mercy, his goodness, and his power. God is preparing. He's readying a remnant right now, a people that will drink deep of his revelation and his presence a people that will walk in his covenant ways. You know, no matter how bad it may seem, how dark things look, God is moving. God is speaking. And God is calling a people. Do we have ears to hear? Will we hear what the Spirit is saying to the church? Will we respond in obedience? When he says to you, go and hide yourself at the brook Cherith, do you make excuses? Say, like, I tried that for a while and then I got distracted and I couldn't do it and it was difficult. And, and perhaps, you know, you even became, a, you came under attack from the enemy. Things went wrong. I know I've heard stories of churches and I've seen it personally where God's people have said, yes, Lord, we will come into the secret place. Yes, Lord, we will draw near to you. We will wait upon you. We will worship. We will pray. And we will put your kingdom first in our lives. And then the enemy begins to attack such people. The enemy begins to assault on the front lines, those who are trying to advance the kingdom. And then people become discouraged and, and people begin to withdraw and they, they back off because of the intimidation of the enemy. But I want you to know that that only lasts for a season, that if you will continue to press through, the Lord will raise a standard against the enemy. When he comes in like a flood, the Lord will raise up a standard. The Lord will raise up a rampart. He will protect you. He will give you the victory. And he will cause you to move into a place of greater power and intimacy. God is bringing and raising up something fresh. It's based on the New Testament pattern, the very foundation of Christ himself, who said, I will build my ecclesia, not a denomination, not, not a, a, a religious gathering, but an ecclesia, a called out people, a set apart people who gather in his presence to hear him, to understand his will, to obey and to enact it on the earth, to advance his kingdom in obedience. God is moving. God is doing powerful things. You know, I love Psalm 25, verse 14. In the New King James Version, it says, The secret of the Lord, the secret of the Lord is with those who fear him, and he will show them his covenant. Wow, so powerful. You know, the Passion Translation puts it this way listen to this psalm 25 14 in the passion translation there's a private place reserved for the lovers of god 
where they sit near him and receive the revelation secrets of his covenant promises. Wow, so powerful. God is preparing a people, a people that will delight in his presence more than in prosperity, more than his provision, more than even his promises. We know the story about how Moses wanted was to bring the people into the promised land and, and the Lord said, no, I'm not gonna, I'm not going to go with you, Moses. I'm not gonna go with the people. He said, but I'll send an angel and my angel will go and my angel will lead the people into the promised land. And, and Moses cried out and he said, Lord, if you don't go with us, don't send us. How will people know we belong to you unless your presence goes with us? How will people know the difference? So Moses was saying, Lord, we're not going to settle just for the promise. We've got to have your presence. We've got to have your presence. And this is a season and a time when God is wanting to reset the church. He's wanting to baptize people with the Holy Spirit. He wants to give and send his spirit afresh on the earth in the lives of men and women. He wants to do miracles. He wants to pour out his spirit. He wants to deliver the captive. And he wants you to hear his voice. And he wants to move powerfully in your life. God is alive. Jesus is alive. He said, I will build my church, my ecclesia. He's not building an organization or a denomination. I recognize that there are times when we, we need to organize. But I'm not saying that's, that's not what it's about. It's about the becoming the habitation of God. Not only individually are we the temple of the Holy Spirit, but collectively we are to become the very habitation of God, as it says in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 22, and Exodus 25, verse 8, let them build me a sanctuary that I may dwell among them. The word sanctuary is the, is the same word in which we get Kadesh, Jehovah Kadesh, God who is holy. It doesn't speak of a mundane building that would be used for just you know, ordinary, everyday purposes, but it speaks of a sacred place. Let them build me a secret place. We're called to be that sacred place today. We're called to be his temple. We're called to be holy. We're called to prepare him ourselves so that he can live within us, separating ourselves from the darkness, separating ourselves from sin and wickedness and and the things of this world and, and yielding to the Lord, yielding to the Lord so that he can come and pour out his spirit, the spirit of holiness, the resurrection power that he can manifest himself. I want to pray and I want to declare and decree some things. We're taking time right now to just yield to the Lord, to hear his voice. And I believe God is speaking. He's challenging us. But what will we say? The question that Jesus asked his disciples, I want to pose that to you. Who do you say he is? Who is he really to you? Is he the Christ? The word Christ means the anointed one. The one who's anointed. Do you know him as the anointed one? As the one that shares his anointing with you. That has poured out his spirit upon you. Do you know him 
as the son of the living God? Do you know him as God? Do you know him personally and intimately? Do you know him as king of kings and lord of lords? Is he your king? Is he your lord? Someone has said if he's not lord of all, he's not lord at all. Do you know him that way? He wants to be king. He wants you to bow your knee and recognize there's no other king. There's no other Lord. There's no other God. Only him. Will you bow down and worship him? Will you make that a lifestyle? Will you declare that today? Lord, you are king of kings and Lord of lords. You are the Christ, the anointed one. You are the son of the most high God. And Lord, I thank you for the keys of the kingdom keys to advance your kingdom. The keys that shut down, that close doors, that forbid. Keys that open. Keys that grant access. Keys that open up the heavenly realms. and Keys that, that close the portals of darkness and what the enemy's trying to do as well. Let's use what he's given to us. Let's rise up as the ecclesia of God in this season. Father, we thank you for your power. We thank you for your anointing. We thank you that you are a God that heals. You are a God that delivers. And I thank you right now, Lord, that you are a God that cares about every need we have, that you are answering our prayers, that you desire to move. But Lord, not only do you desire to move in us, but you desire, Lord, to do a deep work in us, a deep work, even as you... You began, you worked in Elijah. Elijah knew you. Elijah was already being used powerfully, but you set him aside in the midst of this dark and difficult time. Not that he would squander time, not that he would waste time, but that he would actually grow more closely to you. This is a season where we can get better or we can get bitter. We can, we can draw closer to God or we can, we can actually draw further away from God. It's our choice. This is a season and a time. And I believe God is calling his church back to the altar. He's calling us back to build, you know, f- prayer altars in our homes, with our family, in our, even in, in our personal life, as well as collectively with our church family. You may only be able to do that online right now with others. But God is wanting to bring a people together, an Elijah company that will seek his face and will re receive revelation from him i want to bless you in the name of the lord i pray that you take this word this very word that god has given through his son jesus and how elijah recognized the call to be an ecclesia so to speak to hear from god to obey the lord to advance his kingdom and to tear down the gates of hell he tore down the powers of darkness single-handedly with the Lord's help and saw an entire nation turn back to God. And then he prayed. He went to the top of the mountain. He prayed seven times until he saw a cloud the size of a man's hand. And the rain came and brought healing to the land once again. What a powerful story. God wants to do it again. Come on, will you just say, do it again, Lord. Do it again, Lord. Do it in my time. Do it with me. Do it with my family. I want to pray for you. If you have family members that are not serving the Lord, I declare and decree in Jesus' name that this is the year, this is the season, this is the time when they will come back, that they will come trembling to the Lord in his goodness in the last days. 
in these latter times, according to Hosea 3.5. Lord, you said you will reveal yourself to those who are not seeking you. You will manifest yourself to those who don't know you. Lord, I pray right now, even those who are not seeking you, even those, Lord, who have no interest in you, family members, friends, Lord. Lord, we pray, even, even in marriage relationships where one spouse is serving God and the other isn't, I declare in Jesus' name right now that you will manifest yourself supernaturally, Lord, that you will step in and you will intervene. You will make yourself known as the God of Elijah. And you will intervene proactively, bringing revelation and awakening those who are in slumber, Father. Move, Holy Spirit, powerfully in this day. Powerfully once again, Lord. As people see signs and wonders on the earth. As the book of Acts becomes our new normal. People are saying COVID-19 is the new normal. I believe the book of Acts is to be our new normal. And even greater works. Even greater works. Let's continue what was started in the book of Acts. Amen. Let's see his kingdom prevail throughout the earth. God bless you. God bless you in the name of Jesus. Everyone loves shopping online. Well, I'm going to tell you what I tell my golf buddies when they buy clubs. Stop searching for coupon codes. Download Capital One Shopping to your computer. Capital One Shopping instantly searches for available coupon codes and automatically applies them at checkout. Plus, it's free. And you don't even need a Capital One card to use it. That's like hitting a hole in one without even trying. Capital One Shopping. It's kind of genius. What's in your wallet? Savings and available coupons vary.